All right. Welcome to episode four of APIs You Won't Hate. I'm Matt, and I'm here with my two really good friends, Mike and Phil. Guys, how's it going? What's up, Matt? Hey, all as well. Phil, um, we have to ask, what country are you in? I'm in Portugal. I'm cycling south for winter. So after, where, where, where is after Portugal? What's your plan? Uh, I'm going to Gibraltar, which is this like weird little bit of technically kind of uh, owned by the UK, but in Spain. Uh, contentious issue. Um, and then taking a ferry across to Morocco, which should be warm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Recycling in Africa. That's cool. Yeah. I figured I'm kind of running out of, of bits of Europe, so I've just started going that way instead. Nice. Yeah, that would be really cool. Hopefully it goes well for you. Hopefully it's not like too much different from what you're used to as well. I think I'm going to get a lot of sand in my bottom bracket, but uh, I'm just going to buy some extra tools to help clean that out. <laughs> Probably a good idea. Right. If you make it as far as uh, Nigeria, I, I know there's a, a bustling tech community in Lagos there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't really know too much. I mean, it, it's tricky from a cycling point of view because once you get to Morocco, you can't just go wherever you want. Uh, like the the border to the right is Algeria, and that that border's been closed for a long time. Yeah. And then south is um, West Sahara, which has some trouble. And my bike is not necessarily set up for kind of sand dune cycling anyway. So I think it might be Morocco and then like back up to Spain. And there's a few different. You can kind of bounce along the, the south coast doing different ferries. So I might be able to like. Uh, back to Spain and then down to Tunisia and then, you know, maybe across to Malta and kind of go around that way. I don't really know, but it's probably not, probably not just heading straight south through all of Africa. That might be a bit beyond me at this point. Yeah. Well, even that plan doesn't sound terrible. No. I've heard Malta is pretty nice. Yeah. I've heard good things about Malta. So probably really cool. Uh, so we have some fun things to talk about. I think the coolest thing uh, we should start with is, um, uh, where was it? It's the, hold on. Yeah. Uh, so Jason schema is now, uh, Phil, correct me if I'm wrong, is now basically built into open API. Is that correct? Yeah, pretty much. So, well, um, I think I've rambled about it in the past, mostly because this, this problem has been affecting my life in a myriad of ways, uh, for probably a year or two. Um, basically open API version two and version three is kind of like based on JSON schema, their schema objects, like in the documentation, in the spec, it will say like, this is pretty much JSON schema, but we made a couple changes. And and those changes are like, we added a few things, we removed a few things, and we also like changed the meaning of a couple of things. And there's a few bits that we didn't really uh, list the differences, but just are different anyway. So there's like a whole bunch of confusion for, for users, for tooling vendors, for everybody, um, where basically a lot of people would, would think that they were writing JSON schema and they try and use JSON schema keywords, but it didn't work because OpenAPI didn't support that particular keyword um, or, or the other way around. And, and so you try using JSON schema tooling, um, but it's OpenAPI syntax and it's so annoying. Um, they were like 90% the same, but that 10% of differences and, and, and like discrepancy and confusion meant that I would lose about an hour a day fixing weird bugs that came out of that discrepancy or trying to help users or or whatever and especially when i started working at, at stoplight who make tools in the space i just a lot of my time went into this but um so stoplight were pretty cool they they let me work on solving this with the json schema and open api teams um it was a huge team effort i just kind of you know w w was pushing it a, a fair bit and we basically got open api version 3.1 the upcoming version uh, the RC1 should be out in February. So the upcoming version uh, of OpenAPI is going to be 
actually JSON schema with four keywords added, uh, which is fine because the new draft of JSON schema um, supports the concept of vocabularies. And with a vocabulary, you can say like, hey, we want um, JSON schema core, JSON schema uh, validation. And then we've got this other open API schema vocabulary where we have this other stuff. And some of that's like deprecated things. So like nullable is in there and that's deprecated. You should use type contains null and things like that. So we, we basically uh, unscrewed that mess, which has been going on for a very long time. Oh, that's really exciting. It sounds like that was probably a pretty uh, intense collaboration too. Um, can, can you tell us a bit more about uh, where where the people live who work on OpenAPI and JSON Schema? Like, who are they? Who are these magical yeah. people that control these things? Um, yeah, so there's something called the OpenAPI Technical Steering Committee, and I can't quite remember how I found it or where it is. I'm sure it's on the website somewhere, but finding anything on their website is difficult. Um, basically, there's a weekly meeting with something called the Technical Steering Committee, and that involves uh, folks, uh, there's no official head, but like Daryl Miller, um, who works at Microsoft, uh, does a lot of the kind of chairing those conversations. Um, and there's uh, there's Ron and, and Ted and a bunch of other people just on, anyone can join. So like you go, anyone listening can just pop in and join. And uh, we just kind of chat about stuff. And as long as there's quorum, then those are the decision makers that can merge the pull requests for OpenAPI. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of tricky because every, we, I made a pull request and then like six months later it got merged, right? Because <laughs> there's a lot of things that can come up. Like sometimes yeah. people can't make it. They took a little break for, for summer, um, which was for the best because one of the times I was trying to like really push this in a meeting, like, hey, let's, let's get this merge done. But I had like heat exhaustion, maybe potentially heat stroke. And I was like trying to explain the, the changes that would happen to open API if they adopted this. And I was like fumbling over my own words. Um, so <laughs> that, did, that one didn't go very well. But then other times, you know, the decision makers are, are sick or someone doesn't un understand something. So they kind of nod and smile. And then later on, they'll go, actually, crap, I didn't understand that. So you, you actually make backwards progress. Yeah. Um, and then like some other random problem would come up. Like we had this issue where uh, OpenAPI 3 kind of hints that you might actually need to have uh, type. you like, you have to have type and, and JSON schema doesn't, uh, require you to have a type so we had to try and figure that out um and then like nullable false um like if you if you don't have nullable does that like what's the default value there and what does that mean against type and uh, like all these really weird super small things that you wouldn't even have thought of in the first place someone will go what what about nullable and you're like ah fuck and then that's like another month of just discussions of trying to solve that thing so everything got massaged really nicely and there was like six prs that kind of went in before this big one um, but uh, yeah, everything, everything is looking pretty good now. Um, and yeah, it's going to be a while before people get to use it because, uh, open API version 3.1 RC one will hopefully come out in February. Fingers crossed. Um, this isn't the first time we've had a deadline, but this one sounds more likely. Um, but then all the tooling has to catch up. And not every single tool in the entire ecosystem, but like every tool that you use. <laughs> and so, um, that that can be kind of tricky. Like we're working real hard on uh, Stoplight on on getting uh, the latest version JSON JSON schema supported and uh, the latest version of OpenAPI supported. Um, but you know, a lot of tooling developers don't even have version three properly supported yet because a lot of them are like little one man one person teams that are struggling to do various different bits. And now we've got more bits to throw at them. So it, it might be a while before everyone gets to enjoy it, but it is progress. 
No, it sounds great. Um, and it sounds exciting too. Here's a really dumb question that I'm sure other people are thinking. So I'll fall on the sword and ask it. What is the difference between JSON schema versus JSON API, which a lot of people are super familiar with? Like, Oh yeah. Um, is, is there much divergence between the two or are they pretty like interchangeable? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, we actually had the blog on the website a while ago, which now very much needs to be updated because people would often say, I've heard standards are good. We want to use a standard for our next website. Which standard should we use? Should we use OpenAPI or JSON Schema or JSON API? And they're three totally different things. Um, basically, uh, JSON API is, I call it a message format. It's like the actual shape of the actual data going over the wire. Um, so if you're going to respond with some JSON, it tells you what date, what shape it should take, where metadata goes, how you distinguish a resource versus a collection, how you do filtering and pagination, bunch of like what, what shape error should take, all that. Um, so that's the actual data going over the wire. And then Open API and JSON Schema are both description formats, API description formats, um, which you can use to describe stuff. So you could have JSON API going over the wire, and then JSON Schema describing the shape of it. Um, so it Think of that as metadata, which you can use for documentation, validation, and a bunch of other things. Um, so then the difference between open API and JSON schema is JSON schema is not designed for uh, for APIs. You can use it to describe any data that's JSON or YAML-ish or whatever. Um, and basically the idea of that is you can use JSON schema to describe kind of the, the payload in an API. So like the request and the response body would be JSON schema. Um, maybe other things like parameters and headers, um, but there's no there's no particular glue. So that's where Open API comes in. It, it's leveraging JSON schema um, for the the describing like bodies and stuff. And then Open API says, this is the endpoint. This is headers. This is parameters. This is all of the API specific stuff. And then we'll have little bits of JSON schema dotted about where it makes sense. No, that's awesome. I think that really clears up um, what a lot of people probably look at JSON API and they're like, well, this doesn't make sense. Or they're looking at JSON schema and wondering how to actually format their, their response body in a way that makes sense. So really, I mean, that, that was a, if I, I'll buy you some trees for that one. Um, <laughs> I mean, that was, that was great overall. Um, yeah. You said like, so we won't really see this JSON schema in the open API till a few more months now, probably. Right, like at least February is when the RC comes out. It'll probably have a few RCs because that's just how the world works. Yeah. So probably, I mean, August probably at the earliest, maybe. It, it depends, really. I mean, it depends on how many different tools you have by how many different people. Um, it's there's a lot of like really upstream tools that a lot of people use, like um, uh, you know, AJV, the JSON Schema Validator, and uh, there's a bunch of different like. JSON ref resolvers and all these like really obscure tools that no one is buying anyone any trees or beers or, or whatever over. Um, and, and like those things need to upgrade before anything else does, right? Like these really high level tools. So um, it'll be interesting. Like if you if you have like 10 different open API related tools, like you have one thing for validation and one thing for editing and one thing for, for generating documentation and maybe some homegrown stuff in the corner, um, then it could be a really long time. Um, but if you use one provider for everything, like Stoplight, you're going to have our entire ecosystem upgraded in the space of like a month or two. Um, so like done, <laughs> you know, even before you, you can start running an RC version and using it throughout the entire system, it, it, it'll just be done. But 
yeah, it, it, you're kind of at the mercy of open source developers and how much free time they have. <laughs> and I mean, like, to be honest, it seems like you have more free time than most anybody I've ever met. So when are you going to get on the technical steering committee? I have been asking about that. I'm not sure what the actual process is. Um, I would like to help OpenAPI any way I can. Um, I, th I think Stoplight are some sort of official member or something, but I, I haven't formally gone through the process yet. <laughs> Maybe cool. Maybe, I mean, that would just be another thing to add to the long list of things that you've done that people claim you take over. So. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I would love to take over Open API. <laughs> yeah, like, what was it first? Was uh, the League, and then the League of Extraordinary Phil's Ego, or something? I can't remember. What yeah, something like that. It. Yeah, and now I have Fractal, which is kind of funny how that all works out. Somehow I find my way into your old projects. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for helping out. Your your work is always appreciated. I do what I can. I do what I can. Um, so, one last question about JSON schema, just because um, I, I I know what it is and I've looked at it, but like if someone was new to JSON schema, is there like a good resource out there for them to get started with trying to understand how that fits into their whole ecosystem by chance? Like, like just off the top of your head, there may not be one, I don't know. Mm -hmm. No, not entirely sure about that. There's um, the JSON schema, it's json-schema.org, um, does actually have a few kind of tutorials. Um, a lot of them need to be updated. Um, we're kind of working on that, um, but, Generally, yeah, there's not, like, apart from the APS, you wouldn't hate blog, there's not too much floating around. <laughs> All right. Well, it sounds like there's room there for someone, you, us, to fill in the gap, maybe. Community contribution. We love that stuff. Yeah. I mean, we can get Phil to do it from the side of the road, and then we can, <laughs> him. And then we can buy trees in order to um, pay him back. There you go. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. that's fair. That way you can have some shade on the side of the road. Exactly. That's pretty much why I got into trying to plant trees. Just in case anyone is just like listening to this for the first one and they have no idea why we keep banging on about trees. Um been trying to fundraise to get people to plant trees. I found out a fun stat the other day that we're we are losing one um soccer pitch worth of trees every second. And um you know, we're we're planting about one every week. So the numbers are a bit off there. Um wow. so I've been partnering with um offset earth, offset.earth to try and plant a bunch more trees. Um, and, and I use them as bribes. If you send a pull request to, or, or a blog post to APAs you don't hate or any other projects that we work on, pretty much going to bribe you with trees every time. So, um, yeah, that's that's why we keep talking about trees. And it's also why I got into uh, trying to plant trees because I kept cycling around really hot areas which had trees and I could hide in the shade. And I'd cycle around places that didn't have trees and it would suck and you get heat stroke. So that's why I like them. <laughs> we have the... Um... Did, did it so oh yeah someone did so um you can go on to so one of the projects that we work on is openapi.tools if you aren't familiar it's just a simple website where we talk about tooling around openapi um if you like the work that we do um all three of us are very much involved on this project there's a button where you can buy us a tree um so if you're listening to this and you're like these three guys are kind of funny and good at what we do there's a button and you can hit it or smash it as the cool kids say, <laughs> and you can buy us trees and it'll help keep Phil alive and give the rest of us more breathable oxygen. Um, yeah. We'll, we'll see about getting a link for that in the show notes too. So you can uh, scroll yeah. down on your, your pod device of choice. Yeah. And so speaking of like, I mean, we have, we have a few more API stuff, but uh, let's, let's take a quick break from that. Um, so one fun thing that was announced uh, I think it was earlier this week, maybe late last week, is that Microsoft is going 
retroactively going uh, carbon negative and not only going just carbon negative, but they're going to try and make up carbon uh, that their items and machines have produced since they started as a company. Um, overall, this seems like a really good thing. Uh, but I mean, Phil, Mike, you guys might have read a little bit more into it. I mean, is this as good as it sounds or is, is there like a catch somewhere down the road that we may not be seeing right now? Yeah, so it's it's gigantically ambitious uh, because Microsoft has been around for a long time, right? I think since the 70s, early 80s, something like that, yeah. uh, in various capacities. And, and in those numbers are included all of the offsets for buildings they've built, for software they've produced, for electricity they've consumed, for uh, people traveling um, and, and data centers, all of the things that, that have made Microsoft the company it is. I think probably the biggest challenge is... Um, calculating that number effectively and, and coming down to a reasonable number for offsetting and then putting money towards it in a way that actually does something meaningful. Uh, but with that being said, it's the kind of giant ambitious goal that a company with a billion dollar, you know, multi-billion dollar coin purse should be, should be headed for. Um, and, and full disclosure, uh, I worked for Microsoft for quite a while. So uh, included in that number, I'm, I'm quite grateful for uh, the, the, literally hundreds of flights I took over the seven years that I was working there. Uh, and me and, you know, hundreds of probably thousands of other peers who were flying all over the damn place. Um, it's a big number. It's a lot to soak up. And I hope that they're able to do it transparently and in a way that's not just a PR stunt. Um, I sort of have faith that that'll happen. Uh, and th this got me spinning in kind of a direction this week where um, I was talking with Phil and a couple others about um, how, how folks like us who build software or are putting together software companies can make decisions and um, plans for building companies that are more carbon neutral and, and climate friendly and all those other things. Um, at the moment, I don't have a ton of great answers for it, but my uh, early research has, has indicated a couple of different tools that can be used for calculating or estimating or projecting um, your carbon offset. Uh, I have yet to actually get access to any of these tools because most of them seem to be in early access type of beta. Uh, but there's a couple the of one that's 100 euros as well. <laughs> yes, right. There's some that you have to pay for, so it's, it's a bit of a problem. Um, I'll drop some links to these also in our show notes. Uh, one that I thought was particularly useful that I was reading through was B Corporation. The letter B Corporation.net uh, lists off a lot of documentation around like, here's what you should be thinking about, and here's what we recommend, and here's how you can go get certified if you want to, and you have the budget for it. Um, Man, I don't know. I mean, it seems like Microsoft's doing something really, really ambitious, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, whether or not uh, they'll actually be able to account for everything they've done is challenging, but I also think it's probably the sort of situation where they'll come up with some number and multiply it by 10, uh, you know, for a sort of factor of safety kind of thing, um, or at least I hope they do, and I, I look forward to hearing more about it in the future. I know that all of my colleagues and former comrades from Microsoft have been uh, tweeting about this all week, and so... It's the kind of thing that people can get behind, uh, and, and it seems like a good thing to me. All up, I'd love to see more companies jump on that bandwagon and do it. Yeah, I would. I would agree with you on that one. I mean, it, it's super cool. Um, to I, I'm pretty sure. I don't think Apple has retroactively gone carbon negative, but I know they're very much at the uh, forefront of trying to be as um, renewable as possible. I think Cupertino is solar panel pretty much as much as they can be, um, and if I'm correct, they are on 100% renewable energy. So it's cool to see private business in it. I, was, I would love to see the government own up and be mature adults. That's never going to happen. Um, all right. I will say that um, from listening to like you and Phil and other people, it's made me 
start kind of changing my life a little bit. Um, things like whenever the impossible burger is being offered, I try and buy it just, um, not because I'm a vegan or anything, but because it tastes good. A and B, the more, um, interest they see in it, hopefully it'll start driving the price down. So that way it's a lot more accessible for a lot of people. Um, a lot of places, at least here in Nashville, I don't know how it is, um, throughout the rest of the country, but there's usually like a four or $5 charge to do the impossible burger on top of like a normal burger. So a normal burger here is like $12. So it ends up being 17 beer, all that stuff ends up being like 20, $25, which I can afford thanks to my, you know, like working in tech and all that. Um, but so I'm, I'm taking it upon myself to try and eat that more often. So that way, um, hopefully businesses see it as a success and then they can start, um, bringing the price down just a little bit. Um, we just had our first like, uh, refillable store. I, I don't know what the right word is, but like, oh, yeah, zero waste stores. Yeah. I know waste store it opened up in Nashville, which blew my mind. We're, we're a pretty progressive city and it's 2020. We just got one of those, but it makes me so excited to see this kind of stuff. Um, starting yeah. to pop up and become more mainstream. So, I mean, the word's it's kind of the point. Yeah. The more people, the more people do this stuff, like the more it happens. And, and obviously the people with more money sometimes have to kind of bite the bullet and do the more expensive things sometimes, but that drives it down for everyone. So whether it's, you know, whenever I mention zero waste stores, people say, Oh, that's easy for you in bloody Brooklyn. They're on every corner. Right. But if, if people start to um, go to them a bunch and um, businesses are always looking at trends and if a trend for zero waste is, is happening then more places are going to pop up and it's soon it won't just be in the middle of Gowanus. It will be actually, you know, all over the place like Nashville too. So um, yeah, the more, the more this stuff happens, the better it is for everyone. And that's, that's one of the, the big messages about the Microsoft situation. Like it's obviously good. They're trying to go um, uh, trying to get down to zero and, and, and then even beyond that. Um, I think there are some problems with, I mean, th that plan seems fine, but it's not the entire picture. Somebody pointed out that um, Microsoft can say that they're going to you know, switch to completely renewables. Well, that's not really a big deal because that's saving you money, right? Like that's just cheaper. That's just a smart business choice uh, and, it, and it looks good. So people go, yay. And with Apple, they say we switch to renewable energy. Like good job. It's like half the price these days. It's getting really cheap. Um, but with Apple, for example, they still, you know, they still produce products that are completely glued together that you can't repair. You have to, you have to post it off halfway around the country to to get a special eco robot to like pull them apart, right? You can't do it yourself because um, everything's glued together, right? So they they actually got an F from Greenpeace, uh, who did a report on the um, uh, the, like the advocacy and the product uh, lifespan of their products. So like Apple have. A's across the board and B's uh, on this report card for using renewable energy, the easy, the cheap thing to do. But then where it's important, like, are you making stuff that can actually be recycled and last a long time and it's modular so you can upgrade it? No, it's shit, rubbish after two years. So a lot of companies do the easy bit. They don't think about it the whole way through. Um, and Microsoft, for example, they're still funneling money into Mitch McConnell and not to get political, um, whichever party you prefer, great. But I don't like politicians that are trying to actively destroy the planet, like Mitch McConnell, and unfortunately, the Republican Party currently. Um, so Microsoft is still supporting him, uh, which is a problem. And they're also allowing big oil uh, to use to use their platforms to like find more oil to drill. And whenever this gets brought up, people say like, oh, well, you know, what are, what are they going to start policing next? You start censoring big oil. 
you know, what's going to happen next? You can use it to plan a murder. I'm like, most system services, you can't use it to plan a murder. That's already a thing. Like, terms of service exist for these different things. And you already can't use them to spam. You can't use them to host, you know, um, illegal pornography or something. Like, there's a whole bunch of stuff that you can't use services for. And these big companies just need to add, like, or discovering oil. Right. And then you just add that one little line item. So I think Microsoft could do with fixing some of those little bits before I'm, you know, buying stock in them and and saying, yay, well done. But um, it's a step in the right direction. I mean, everyone should be switching or trying to get their footprint down as much as possible. So, yeah. One of the things I like to mention when when I'm talking to folks about this is that uh, it's easy to feel helpless when you're seeing companies that are having to, you know, invest millions and billions of dollars into. Uh, repairing their their past X Y Z whatever it may be and uh, you know as an individual as someone who's sitting in their home in uh, Des Moines Iowa it, it may feel like you don't have any ability to impact on a larger scale but it is definitely one of those things that there are lots of choices you can make day to day that that uh, can be impactful on the scale that you're able to be impactful um, unfortunately definitely like the this climate change thing is something that slants towards people with access to money and. Uh, options uh, can do more about, right? Like if you're impoverished, you don't really have a lot of choice in your life. And um, to, to be frank, that's something that those of us who are privileged and wealthy and whatever uh, should should be uh, taking up more than our fair share because we can. Um, but for example, one of the things that I've uh, recently started doing this year is I, I've given up eating red meat uh, on, on uh, every occasion where there's an option to not eat red meat, I skip it. Uh, and and it turns out that uh, dairy cows and, and cattle for beef are a gigantic contributor to uh, atmospheric problems due to the methane they put off and due to the uh, fields and fields of grains and things that have to be planted for them to eat and the water that has to be going to that. So there's lots you can do for that and, and lots of ways to contribute. And I think some of it is just sort of putting your ear to the ground or like raising a hand and asking how you can uh, make better choices and, and help other people make better choices. Uh, and to be honest with you, if you're in the United States, you can pick up a phone and call your representative at any time and, and talk to them about uh, choices they could be making better or ways they can be putting their money towards renewables and things like that, which have been proven to uh, return on investment disproportionately, right? So there's something for everyone to do. I don't, I don't want people to feel like um, just because you're not wealthy or you're not uh, you know, in, in Brooklyn, buying from a zero waste store, you're not doing the thing. Uh, it's important, and there's a role for everyone to play. And you can even just convince uh, your your tech leads to switch from AWS to, to Google Cloud, or maybe Microsoft is your stuff soon, because uh, AWS are the worst, and uh, Google is 100% renew- re- renewable energy for their, their data stores. So, um, yeah, stuff like that. There are technical decisions you can make uh, that, that help. I've also been thinking a bunch, bringing it back to APIs a bit, um, I've been thinking a little bit about how making good APIs can actually have uh, an impact. Um, I feel like a lot of people, while I was at WeWork, everyone was desperately trying to figure out how they could reduce the latency of their requests so that they could make more requests immediately. And they'd have you know, uh, a shitload of instances, um, load balanced, all ready to go, trying to you know, uh, replicate their data stores all around, all around the country. So that when somebody made a, you know, and they used gRPC just so it could respond even quicker because HTTP2, um, they would figure out how they could re- try and get all this real-time stuff happening. Um, and most of that data didn't need to be real-time. They just didn't understand how HTTP caching worked and were scared of it. So I'm like, if we had, if we used Fastify, sorry, Fastly, um, they've already got CDNs. So they've already got this on the edge. You don't need to have 
replication managed yourself in a bunch of different places. And with all these servers just sitting there waiting to answer a question the second you answer it, you could just not ask the question. Um, or you could like get Fastify to do it. And then Fastify can, you kind of kick the footprint down the road a little bit, absolutely. Um, but it's going to be a much smaller footprint because there are a bunch of people at Fastify whose entire job is to try and try and lower that. Um, so I am starting to wonder if like <sighs> making smaller, targeted, cacheable endpoints with only the data that you need and not like 10 different related bits of information because you you wanted a, a foo, but you got a bar and a baz and, and something else instead. Um, and you can't cache that data because baz changes a lot, but foo and bar don't, right? Instead of this like stupid HTTP 1.1 network hacking, GraphQL, whatever approach of just let's try and ask all of the data every single time and make it all be as quick as we possibly can. Just don't keep asking for the same shit over and over again. And that would honestly be cheaper and less carbon emissions. Yeah, you I think about that, that cheaper argument is an easy one to make for any stakeholder, right? I mean, if you if you really ask the question of, does this data need to be instant real time? There are so few scenarios in which the answer is yes. Uh, you know, and those are all, all pretty easy to outline as like uh, critical to people being alive sort of things and, and whatever it may be. Like probably systems that track flights uh, for air traffic controllers really, really, really need to be real time. And that's reasonable. But like your, yeah, you know, absolutely. co-working lobby check-in software probably doesn't need to be as real time as, as uh, your team would, would like for it to be. Um, I think it's a good theme for for sort of this climate awareness stuff is a lot of the time it's just about abstaining or using less of something and, uh, you know, being being realistic with yourself in terms of how much do you actually need and how often do you actually need to do X, Y, Z. Um, I was at a talk recently where someone made the metaphor of um, if you've ever called, well, we've all done this, you've called someone and gotten the default sort of voicemail thing on their phone. And even if it's not the default one, right, you might call me and get, hey, you've reached Mike by Fulco, leave a message at the beep. Uh, and then immediately, what's the next thing you hear after that is a beep and then instructions to tell you how to leave a voicemail, which is something that everyone on the planet knows how to do, right? That seven second quip of like, when you're finished leaving your message, please hang up or press pound or whatever it is. Like if that, the, the metaphor the guy made was that if that message was cut out of everyone's phone system across the world, we would save like megawatts of electricity per day, uh, which is just That's this, un like, it's an unreasonable thing. Everyone knows how to leave a voicemail, right? And and it's yeah. it's one of those things that just has become so assumed in the system. I feel like you should be questioning things as you design them and build them and just about everything you do like that before you create this ubiquitous monster. That's just something that, well, of course we have to have the thing where it says press pound to end your voicemail. It's insane. <laughs> That's pretty it's funny. Insane. Yeah. Also, these days, I think you just get rid of voicemail. I mean, most people, <laughs> well, most too. people under the age of like forty, if if a voicemail shows up on their phone, they're like, "Someone's dead," or "I'm fired." Like, I don't. <laughs> ah, you just stare at your phone for a while and go, "What did I do? Is this is this a, in response to something I did when I was drunk the other day?" Like, I don't. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, that's exactly. That's, a, that's a bit from my uh, stand-up act I'm working on. <laughs> um, it's perfect. Anyway, <laughs> just for the record, I, I looked real fast. I have voicemails going back to October seventh of last year. Nice. That's what I haven't listened to. So, and I'm I qualify as a millennial. So obviously, we're killing that industry. Have you been fired, or are you missing any relatives? <laughs> you check hey. check everyone's okay. <laughs> I also don't have a Facebook anymore, so I have no idea how to check. I, I guess I'll uh, actually call people. No. Before. Perfect. Perfect. But now that now that we sucked everyone into uh, our environmental talks, we can get back to APIs for a little bit. Um, 
Something that I ran into the other day, I'd love y'all's opinions on, is still running into this uh, paradigm of returning 200 okay with an error message in the body instead of one of the countless other error API codes that I know Daryl Miller knows um, literally by memory. Um, is there, like, obviously it's done for ease and it's done just, like, to get it out fast. Is there a resource out there to educate people on, like, what API response code they should actually be using? Or is that what 200 OK Boomer is probably going to turn into? <laughs> actually, Daryl Miller did make a, um, a flowchart of, of when to use exactly which. Um, yeah, I think, I think a lot of the time people don't use it just because they have to figure out which is the exact appropriate one. And it can be frustrating that a lot of people feel the need to use every single status code ever. Um, I think in, in the book, I talked to it, talked about it like, some people kind of approach it like it's it's Harry Potter and they just learned a new wiz- uh, learned a new uh, magical spell. They're like, oh, a four seventeen, ha ha, Guardian Leviosa, and they just get too excited about it. But um, yeah, like picking roughly the closest thing uh, can be pretty useful and powerful. I don't know. Uh, we worked. They we we had a bunch of APIs, some third party thing, and uh, we had a monitoring system set up. This was a bit of a shaky crap API that kept going down and crashing the entire company every month. And uh, we set up some monitoring, Runscope uh, Traffic Inspector. It's gone now, but it was good. Um, and every now and then, 500s would show up. Um, and and we, we'd, we'd noticed that because they used the 500 code, this monitoring system would know that there was a problem without us having to code anything specific to API. But then um, we noticed there were a bunch of errors coming through. We're like, we, we seem to be getting more errors than this monitoring system is suggesting. There's, there must be something going on. And we noticed that some of their errors were coming through on 200 for no apparent reason. And when we emailed them and said like, hey, uh, you know, there's there's errors sneaking into our system um, and tripping things up, they just went, oh yeah, the, those the, those are correct. And I was like, well, why is it you got 500 over here but 200 over there? They went, oh, those 500s are an error. They should all be 200. <laughs> I was like, that's the wrong <laughs> way around. <laughs> it's, um, it's very strange. I don't I don't personally understand it. Uh, like con- the conventions of HTTP aren't just a bunch of, well, actually, it's right. It, it comes across that way. But there's a bunch of conventions so that loads of different pieces of tooling from monitoring to testing to, to anything like your, your new relic and, and the traffic inspectors and debugging tools and cache proxies and everything. If you all use these conventions, then all of these tools just work perfectly, even though those tools haven't got a damn clue about your API or anything to do with it. Um, and I, I think people just don't quite appreciate how powerful that is. And they ignore all those things. They probably don't even use HTTP caching or they probably don't use any of those tools. Um, or they don't need like automated monitoring for a hundred different APIs. They don't necessarily know how they, they work properly. Um, so they just don't bother and then reinvent the wheel a hundred times and build some very specific monitoring system that looks at their, like there was an error, true, and, and whatever Jason, you know, payload they've got and just build it all themselves, I guess. I mean, it's weird. Yeah, if I can offer a bit of perspective, um, so so, as a reminder, if, if you're new listening to this, my role as a developer is pretty much always on the other side of the API, right? Like, whereas Phil and Matt are the guys who are building the thing and piping it out, uh, I'm I'm the uh, jughead on the other end of the line who's receiving and using the API to build things out. Uh, and a lot of the times, um, from my perspective, it is you get what you get and you kind of deal with it uh, because I, I don't currently, and it's been a long time since I've worked on any team where I've been working with the API builders, so to say. Um, and so you're forced to do this dance of like figuring out how the errors come back if they come back. 
uh, I have I have uh, memories of querying systems for data and getting back a response that says, uh, you know, here's the shape of the data, but you should be looking at this little node inside of it to see uh, if the exists flag is set to true or false, which is really what would indicate maybe an error on the other side traditionally. Um, so from, from the perspective of the end user of the API, a lot of the time it causes you to bend over backwards uh, to anticipate all of the possible errors. Whereas if there was a predictable way to say, okay, well, I may not know what this specific 4xx or 5xx error means, uh, I at least know that that error is either coming from the client end or from the server end, and I can uh, dish out some sort of uh, response in, in um, you know, as, as they come along. Uh, the world we live in, the reality of the world that I live in at least, is, is that a lot of the time you really just don't know these errors until you bump into them. Uh, and so from my perspective, what it's required is really, really good logging and real-time event reporting uh, on the client side that may, may even just send something off to a Slack channel or to a paper trail log or something like that that gets inspected after the fact uh, that causes exactly what you're talking about, Phil, that look, there's some sort of review of like, hey, we're seeing a bunch of errors. We don't know where these are coming from, but how can we kind of pick up the breadcrumbs here? Um, and I, I suppose the, the entire point of this treatise is just to say that like, it puts a lot of impetus on the, the developers building the interface to have anticipated all of the things that maybe if the API was built according to spec would have been a lot easier. Uh, but I, I think it ends up being a lot more of that same weight on top of the front end developers where in addition to web standards and CSS and your UI stuff and being able to set up a secure project and all the other things you need to anticipate the things that the, the middle tier uh, folks never got around to or, or just didn't know they were supposed to do. Um, so in my perspective, it's an education challenge on both sides. Uh, and I think the more that folks talk about this, the more they're forced to think about it, the, the better it will be for uh, both sides of the system. Mm. Yeah, I totally get that. Um, it's, it's difficult. So being a big old standards advocate, like I, I didn't really start out as one, but just like every single time there's a problem, I've found that there's a standard that solved it already. And if they used it, it would be fine. Uh, and so that was what a lot of the work was at WeWork. People were like, oh, it's really, you know, we've got problems with, with caching. We've got all these different clients that are caching things for different amounts of time. They don't know when they can stop and like just literally implement HTTP caching. Um, and enable like a HTTP caching uh, middleware on your client. So like we don't need to teach every single uh, API client application developer um, how the intricate parts of the HTTP caching system works because bloody hell it's hard. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head right now. Um, but you can implement uh, a middleware and you have it. You didn't have to think about it. You try and make the request and it will look to see if it's got the cached version in the background. It will look to see if it's still valid and it will look to see if the time's expired or it will pass off the e-tag and then see if they might. It will do all that stuff for you. You just make a request and you get a response. You don't know where it came from and that's fine. Um, and things like, you know, um, there was a failure, but um, it, was, uh, it was a 404, so don't retry it. And it's a 401, so don't retry that. But actually maybe a 403 could be retried because it might just mean your token's out of date. There's all the kind of intricate stuff that again, like if you're a API client developer, that would suck to have to try and learn which, which, which uh, HTTP methods and which status codes should you retry on, right? That's kind of hard. Um, but if they emit a retry, uh, retry after header, great, go ahead and retry. You've been told to retry it in 30 seconds, so you should do that. Um, and then also somebody else can put the hard work into saying, well, okay, a 500 could probably be retried and anything five can probably be retried, but like a 407 or whatever, don't retry that. Pe people have built all of these 
tools and you can just enable them with one line of code and then your API is better and your client is better and your error reporting is better. And, and I think, yeah, I, I just wish more people knew how easy things can be if they use standards compliant tooling. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's another chip behind the value of open source too, right? One of the more popular libraries for web application developers who use JavaScript to run HTTP requests is called Axios. And if you go and pop into Google a search for retry after Axios, there's loads of discussions around how to do that. And a lot of them lead to the same couple of repos that have solved the problem. And I think what inevitably happens is those things collapse into one. You just have to be able to, you have to know that when you hear retry after, that's part of a standard and, and that you can probably look to someone else who's already worked on it or maybe is actively working on it. Or for example, the one I've got open on my screen sort of just arbitrarily right now says, uh, hey, we'd love to support 429 properly with retry after um, and a bunch of details about it. And the first response is, that's a great idea. We would gladly accept a pull request for this, right? People nice. are looking for help. They recognize yeah. that it's there. Uh, and so when, when you see the standards issues, it's easy enough to, to get in and, and be helpful there. Um, mm. And the the entirety of the developer community and user community and all that is better off for it. Yeah. Actually, I, I one thing I think that was a big change for me in, in the way that I think about this stuff is the realization that HTTP is not a, um, it's not a transportation layer. It's a trans transfer layer. I think I got that the right way around. Um, my understanding is right, even if the words are wrong. Basically, it's not just a, a tunnel. It's not just like uh, the means of making a connection to do the thing. Because pe it's basically, you know, should I even try and make this request? And when I get a response, what, should, what do I do about that? Like it's this whole extra layer on top. And someone who's much smarter could tell you which different like network layer it is. And I, I forget all that stuff. But basically, you know, things like HTTP caching, it's not, it's not just about making that request. It's about like you don't need to make that request right now because you're already good, mate. Um, and so once people realize that there's, there's all those kind of extra bits in there um, about when you do or don't need to make a request and, and like how you respond when you, when you get certain things back, because like TCP is the, is the transportation layer, right? Like you could just make a TCP API that if you just want to ping things backwards and forwards. Right. Um, and, and with those APIs, like, you know, things like gRPC, you really are just pinging things backwards and forwards. And there is no standard for how errors should be formatted. Um, cause they don't really care cause you're just trying to ping the server and then it will be like success, false or whatever, you know, just like in the Ajax days, we used to do the same thing. Everyone had a totally different way of saying there was an error and it did it work false, um, whatever. And, and you just, you're just using it as a dumb tunnel and just pinging fields around. But with HTTP, you don't need to do that. So I think a lot of the confusion comes from people trying to use HTTP like a transportation layer instead of a transfer layer. That makes yeah. Sense. I think, I think you got the terms right there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I like also, to pretend I'm clever. Yeah. <laughs> and also, you know, I mean, with lack of developer education, with somebody like code boot camps and stuff, with so much I have to teach, you know, things like this get fallen to the wayside. Things like accessibility yeah. get fallen to the wayside. You know, I mean, so it not only is it on us as the open source developers to write these features for like Axios or whatever, but also to come up with silly little one-page sites like we do, like openapi.tools and stuff, as a way to break down standards that are boring to read. I mean, who likes to read RFCs um, besides my really good friend, Ben Ramsey? I think he's the only one who like enjoys reading white papers um, and present the content in a way that it's engaging and fun and not just monospace text on a white background 
that yeah. feels old and outdated. Right. I mean, how many sites can you think of that are just a one page meme describing why something's a really, really bad idea? Like you're like more likely to remember those than the other things that are just little gotchas that you have to go look up the standard for every time. Yeah, I mean, and it's also like, you know, like if you're looking for a tooling around OpenAPI, OpenAPI.tools is super easy to remember versus like RFC, you know, 4695. <laughs> Who's going to know yeah. that? Um, so, sure, I mean, actually, I think, speak. One thing I was just going to say, um, what, one thing there is, uh, yeah, so OpenAPI uh, are, are also working on making things a little bit easier to understand. Like right now, a lot of OpenAPI tooling kind of it, it isn't super great um a lot of the time because reading that giant spec is hard and people miss things and get bored like every time i go back to it i find some whole section that i completely forgot about like the encoding keywords i have no idea they existed until a few months ago um so uh they're, they're actually starting to work on creating more tutorial type content so people don't have to read the spec because no one wants to read through something that's got a title that's you know section 74 <laughs> so yeah like everyone needs to work on this like if you are producing rfcs write an awesome blog about it please please bring it to us and put it on our website because a lot of the people that write the rfcs sometimes there's a couple of people that do write really good blogs and they do like talk like human beings and make it really easy to understand but a lot of them just end up kind of being surfaced in some white paper that's announced at a webinar that was hidden behind an email wall that automatically spammed you with so many things you unsubscribed before you got the webinar like some of this stuff is so hidden in layers of nonsense that it's really hard to find so if you're working on on standards and, and tooling and things like that like talk about it like humans uh, and and talk to us if you need help doing that like we'd love to write blog posts about some cool new rfc you've got coming out for, for api related stuff but um yeah we need to make it easier for people to understand or they just won't and we'll be having this conversation forever. All right. So that's a challenge. And uh, if someone can write a really cool blog post about like HTTP caching or something, that's not Phil. I will buy you some <laughs> treats. That's the challenge. So nice. it, literally everyone wins, um, even Phil. So there you <laughs> Sounds go. perfect. Um, I think, I mean, this covered a lot of really good stuff. I think we had some really awesome discussions. Uh, does anyone have any lasting final thoughts they want to get out? Or Oh, we should thank Stoplight. Our employers yes. who pay us a, a little bit of money so that we can afford to hire someone to edit this nonsense into something that sounds intelligent at the end. <laughs> yep. Uh, so if you don't know, Stoplight employs Phil, um, and they do a wonderful job of keeping him paid to ride bicycles over Europe. Um, but, I mean, and real fast, y'all just I, – I saw your tweet a couple of days ago. I mean, y'all have done some incredible things over the past couple of weeks, it seems like. Oh yeah, I, I we've made some pretty cool switches uh, internally. One of the last projects I was working on was getting the company switched over to CI/CD. So instead of these big like every two weeks as a, a very uh, tricky release where we have to like test everything, we, we we now have a bunch of automated testing and we can just merge PRs and they go to production. So the the speed in which we can deploy stuff is increasing, um, and with the number of engineers we've hired recently, um, it's like five new people a month show up. I'm like, I don't even know who you are. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> um, so the Slack's become wild. Um, and yeah, we've got some just some really interesting features. I think a lot of people used uh, Studio when it when version one or maybe 1.1 was out. Um, and then they like gave it a try and were like, oh, it hasn't got this advanced feature that I really hoped it would. I'm like, right, we just released version one like the other day. You know, Hang on a minute. 
Um, we're now, <laughs> yeah, like, why doesn't this MVP have all the advanced functionality? Um, totally understandable, um, but we have been like working like mad. So there are a few like awkward differences between studio desktop and web where you could, you could publish on the web, but you couldn't publish on desktop and we fixed it and you can publish multiple branches. So you can have like V1, V2, V3 API documentation in different branches, or you can have like a develop branch for your documentation and link to that separately. And, um, there's just loads of stuff, loads of stuff happening. Um, that is pretty exciting so my, my role there changed from kind of planning technical stuff and writing a lot of like description documents and product requirement documents um to uh, i don't want to say evangelist maybe, maybe evangelist but like talking about what we're doing because we released a bunch of stuff and no one really knew about it because people aren't reading release notes um but i'm looking forward to kind of leaving the engineering team to to kind of like plan their own stuff and and then just like sharing the awesome news with everybody else that's be nice no that sounds awesome um i'd also like to point out that stoplight only has two thousand followers and phil has you have well over like fifty five thousand, i think so it makes sense no no it's nineteen thousand. is it no one cares nobody cares about this at all (laughs) (laughs) but i mean it makes sense that you become kind of like the stoplight evangelist like your twitter is powerful and when you talk about these apis people listen to what you say so I think that's a really good move um, on everyone's part. Um, and I'm, I, I'll speak for myself, but I'm, I'm excited to see what y'all do this year. Because I think like y'all have made API tooling so much cooler um, that I'm just even more excited to see what happens. So huge thank you to Stoplight um, for sponsoring us and keeping Phil employed. Yeah, sometimes it's hard to do. Um, <laughs> so to wrap it up, where can we find everyone online? Um, Mike, what's your Twitter? Yeah, my Twitter is Irreverent Mike. Uh, my blog is similar to that. It's my, my name. Uh, you'll find me on Twitter. Start on Twitter. There you go. And uh, Phil? At Phil Stajan. There you go. And are you still maintaining Phil.bikes or is that kind of dead? Phil.bike is a thing, absolutely. I, uh, I did one the other day. Cool. Well, alive cool. and well. Hey, and don't forget apisyouwon'thate.com. And uh, Matt, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me pretty much everywhere at Matthew Trask. Righteous. Awesome. Nice one. All right. Well, folks, thank you very much. We will catch you all later.